Well, good evening. Tonight, we're finishing out Say Goodbye to Superman. If you've been with us for these past weeks, you know that we've been talking about the fact that a lot of us are very effective. I think we're a culture of very effective folks. But we've been talking about the fact that sometimes it is possible to push ourselves beyond our range of effectiveness. These, are, these have been messages for those among us that would be the overachievers, those of us who would be the very effective individuals, because we've said there are some things you're going to need to watch out for. It's nothing wrong with being a very effective person, but there are a few things that you're going to have to be careful about, right? We talked in the first week about the fact that if you push yourself too far, you can become isolated and end up away from the people that uh, you really uh, care about. We said in week two that sometimes we can even end up becoming our own worst enemy. Week three, we talked about the fact that it's easy to get distracted. Remember, we talked about the fact that some things in life just don't end up really mattering. And then the last week, we talked about exhaustion. And uh, man, I got so much feedback from so many individuals saying that, man, right now I'm in that season. I'm in that season of exhaustion. And those are all things that we need to watch out for. And they're, they're, they're big, but I think this week we kind of take it to a different place as we close this out. Uh, the reason I titled this, the message Kryptonite, if you're a fan of the Superman franchise, then you're probably more aware of this than I, because I just have uh, passing familiarity. But Kryptonite was that thing, right? It was from the planet that Superman was from. Kryptonite was that thing that had the ability that when Superman came in contact with it, it could cause him to lose his powers, right? Cause him to lose the things that made him most effective. And I've been around a lot of really effective people just by God's grace. I've, I've had an opportunity to get to know a lot of folks who are very effective and be around them. And let me tell you what, all of us have a Kryptonite. All of us do. If you're a very effective person, there is something out there right, that is bound to trip you up if you accommodate it, if you hang out with it, if you deal with it. And that's what we're talking about um, this week. We're talking about kryptonite in our lives because um, it is important for us to know how it affects us uh, and how we should respond to it. And if you've been, you know, playing guessing games in your head thinking who I might be talking about, you're probably right because we're going to talk about Samson, right? Now, Samson, if ever there was a Superman character in the Bible... Samson deserves the title. I mean, he was probably the strongest guy that ever lived. God gave him some special strength. Now, that was tied to something, okay, which you should know, is his strength was tied to something called the Nazarite vow. Now, I won't get too deep into this. There's a whole lot of stuff behind this. But God's people would sometimes take a period of their life and really dedicate that period of their life to the Lord. It would be for a specific purpose. And, and in that, they would make a vow to God called the Nazarite vow. And when, for the period of their life that they were dedicated to God, following God's instructions, they would not cut their hair, right? By the way, this could be a man or a woman. They would not cut their hair. They would not uh, drink any alcoholic drink or wine. They would not uh, drink grape juice. Uh, they wouldn't eat grapes, not even grape skins. Uh, they weren't able to come in close contact with a dead body. There were several things that were just specifically prescribed. Don't do these things. As a matter of fact, you should know that the people of God, the people of Israel, had several things that they had to live by. Several self-disciplines. God said, do these things and don't do these things. Nazarites had it at another level. I mean, they were at a level where there were other things they weren't supposed to do. And so they were especially self-disciplined, or at least they were supposed to be. Right? And so tied to Samson's strength is the fact that God has called him to be a Nazarite his entire life. Okay, So this was not just a period like it would have been for most people of service. This is his entire life. right? And this is what God tells Samson's mom and dad when they find out that they're going to have him. So his life should have been a life full of self-control. And certainly it was a Superman life. I mean, this guy had immense strength. But like I said, all of us have a kryptonite, and, and Samson's kryptonite, right, his weakness was women, right? And specifically, 
a, a specific kind of woman he was not supposed to be involved with. Let me, let me give you this passage. I told you that a Nazarite has a specific purpose, right? They're called to a job. God has set them up to do something. Check out in Judges 13.5 what he has been called to do. This is the God's angel telling Samson's mom he's going to begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. All right, well, the Philistines were an occupying force. They were dominating God's people, and it was time for God to step up and do something about it. And so he wanted Samson to be the person that began to rescue God's people from the Philistines. All right, everything makes sense so far. The problem is Samson's weak spot was Philistine women, right? Now, that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'm gonna, we're going to just talk about it in the scriptures and see if we can learn some stuff here, right? So check this out. Judges 14, verse 1. This is, uh, at this point, Samson's an adult, right? It says that Samson was in Timnah one day. Uh, Timnah is a Jewish city. It's kind of a border city between other two, two major towns. And one of the Philistine women caught his eye, right? We'll talk about that later. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye, and I want to marry her. Interesting four words. Get her for me, right? Uh, and his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you could marry, they asked? Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me, right? So there you go. Get her for me. She looks good. That's the beginning of our story, right? Now, you should know, as a matter of fact, every once in a while somebody comes to me and say, you know what, Jonathan, I noticed in the Bible there's a lot of stuff about God saying don't marry this people group and don't intermarry with these people. And, you know, does God have some sort of racist tendency? No, it had nothing to do with that. If any, anytime you see this, when you look at this, God is trying to preserve Israel's worship of the true God. He knows that when, when, his, when, when, when the people of Israel get involved with other people groups, the other people groups have their gods, and all of a sudden, it always seems to happen. When they start to intermarry with this other group, all of a sudden, God's people start kind of riding the fence. They sort of worship these other gods sometimes, and they worship their gods sometimes. I mean, we talked last week, and last week, by the way, the story that we talked about with Elijah is way down the road, you know, a long time later, but you notice they're still dealing with the same problem down the road, right? So anyhow, God is wanting to keep his people solidified in their worship of him. And, and, and so he says, I don't want you to, to intermarry with these other people groups, right? So that's what the deal is with the Philistines. But the Philistines, like I said, they're an oppressive force, but they are there. I mean, in Timnah, a Jewish city, you know, Samson's going about his business and he sees this Philistine gal. So he comes back to his mom and dad and says, she looks good to me. I, I want you to get her for me to marry, which by the way, it's not the way marriages worked back then, right? Moms and dads picked out the kids. You know, I'm going to pick out who Junior's going to marry, right? Now that I'm a parent, that's starting to look better and better to me, um, right? But that's the way it worked. But Samson is very taken with this gal. I mean, he is really taken with her. He comes home and says, she looks good to me. I want you to get her for me. And so mom and dad make the arrangements, even though they object to it at first. And, and, and by the way, before we even get there, I want to ask you this question. Why is Samson even considering this? I mean, after all... I think it's pretty likely Samson's mom and dad have been telling him ever since he was a little kid, your job is to resist the Philistines. That's what you're called to do, right? And now he's kind of flirting around with thinking about maybe I'm going to hang out with this Philistine gal. What gives? But how many of us know that the things that we have been called to stand against are sometimes the things that are most tempting to us? The things that we have been told by God, don't do this, it's not good for you, it doesn't represent a good future, so often those are the things that catch our eye. We're going to talk a minute about why that's the case, right? So I want to talk to you, why did, well, let, let me ask this question, this is a better question. Why does Samson think this is even acceptable? Why does he think he can even do this, right? 
Well, if you, whether or not you're a religious person and whether or not you uh, would say that you're a God follower, I think one thing we can all agree on, and that is that we live in a world with good and evil. We live in a world with good and bad realities. And even if you're a super religious person, I think we could sort of say there's almost like three categories in life, right? There's, there is the right, right thing. I mean, it is absolutely Right. You, you know, you can, like going to church is the right, right thing. You know, you go to church. God wants you to go to church. That's what, reading your Bible is the right, right thing. There's nothing in the world wrong with that. You can read your Bible. We've got all these things that we know. Okay, that's absolutely right. And then we have some stuff over here that's absolutely wrong, right? And the Bible's not even tepidly, you know, just tiptoeing around. It's very clear. The Bible says you can't do this. It's bad. It'll ruin your life. But then it almost seems like maybe... There's some territory in between of stuff that might not be the right, right thing. But then again, it's not necessarily the really wrong thing either. In Deuteronomy 7, Moses is telling the children of Israel not to intermarry with the Canaanites, right? They go into the promised land, um, and they're going to run into a lot of Canaanite individuals. And, and God says, I don't want you to intermarry with them specifically so that they can continue to worship the true God. And this is what he says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you're about to enter and occupy, he will clear away many nations ahead of you. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Uh, these seven nations are greater and more numerous than you. So make no treaties with them and show them no mercy. And you must not intermarry with them, for they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. Now, the gal that he's interested in, what's her nationality? Anybody? She's a Philistine. Let me, let me read the list again. You must not marry the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. You notice somebody's missing? Right? Philistines aren't on the list anywhere. Now, if you read Deuteronomy 7, right, read the whole bit there. The chapter, read a little bit before, read a little bit after what I just read. One thing will be very clear, right? In the spirit of what God was saying, it was implied the Philistines were one of several groups of people that were implied that it would not be a good idea to marry. After all, what did God say? Because they worship other gods, and if you get involved with them, your children will end up worshiping other gods. Well, the Philistines sure didn't worship the true God. I'll guarantee you right now. Right now. They had a god named Dagon. That God was very much like the God Baal that we talked about last week. It was all about fertility. It was all about getting water for your crops. And it was, there was no Jehovah worship and the Philistines at all, right? So it should have been clear. It should have been clear for Samson that that's not a good thing. And But he, the problem is he's sort of camping out in this world where it's like, well, it's probably not, and, and please get this, because I think a lot of us kind of, you know, we can tend to be here. Well, it's probably not what God would want. But then again, he didn't say I can't. He didn't say specifically that I can't do this, but it's probably not what he would want. Now, please listen to me. The more powerful you are, the more effective you are. The stronger you are, the more Satan wants to mount your head on his trophy case. And the more he will come after you. See, that's what Samson didn't understand. See, there's, it's one thing to live in this gray area, if there even was a gray area, but it's one thing to live in this gray area if you're not effective, because then you might get fortunate enough that Satan wouldn't come looking for you. But if you're a very strong person, and if you're very effective, and if you are good at what you do, Satan will paint a target on you. And the thing about it is, he cannot get to you when you're over here, and he certainly has you when you're over there. But you're up for his attention when you live in the middle. I mean, I think if I'm Samson, I'm thinking, uh, well, maybe I have a green light here. You know, after all, 
God didn't say I absolutely can't. And then as a matter of fact, anyhow, if you're the strongest man in the world, it seems like you should be able to handle it. I mean, after all, what's she going to do? Beautiful you to death? You know, I mean, if, if her brothers start causing you problems, her family starts causing you problems, I mean, after all, you can handle it. And I think so many of us, we know that we're kind of flirting with disaster when we live here in the middle. We know that it's not exactly what God would want, but we also think, well, it's not that bad. I know a lot of people who are doing some really bad stuff, so I'm not doing that. And in the middle, we think, well, I'm strong enough to handle this. I, um, when I was a kid, sometimes my dad would take me to Kingman to go fishing. And uh, I wasn't meant to be, I, I don't have the spiritual gift of fishing because um, one thing I noticed was that it required two things that I'm incapable of, right? Sitting still and not talking, right? <laughs> you can't do that, right? I mean, it turns out that you're not supposed to be loud around fish. Did you know that? I'm the kind of guy who goes, well, they're not biting over here. Maybe they'll be biting over there, right? And then they vote you off the island. You have to go home, um, you know? So, but, but here's the thing. I was, I was in Wyoming some years ago. My wife and I lived in Wyoming about a year after we got married, and and uh, I was working at Walmart, as a matter of fact, and I worked the sporting goods section. Now, uh, if you think Wichita Walmarts have a big sporting goods section, just go check out the ones in Wyoming. Uh, my job, one of my big jobs, was to stock the, um, the lure uh, counter. And I was very interested in this. Now, again, I was a failed fisherman, but I was very interested in these lures because I don't know if you know this, but if you're a real fisherman, you do. There are gazillions of these things. I mean, there's all kinds, right? And they all have different kind of names. And there's, fly, there's flies, there's crankbait, there's spinners, there's, you know, all kinds of different uh, uh, bait, you know? And as I was looking at this, I was thinking, wow, this is really uh, just a little over the top. I mean, this is for, you know, it's like I'm thinking this is just because people get obsessive about their hobbies. But I was, they told me, they, you know, I was working with guys who really were fishermen. They said, no, you don't, you don't get it. This is not obsession. I said, each of these lures has a fish that goes with it, right? <laughs> it's built to catch a special kind of fish, and they know that those fish go for this lure. For instance, this is a spinner. How my fishermen in the room, what is a spinner for? Bass, I heard it somewhere, right? Mostly. You might get a couple other things to catch, but um, if you're fortunate and not like me. Um, but anyhow, so, um, but this, is the, this has been designed to catch a specific kind of fish. Now, what is a lure? Let me just ask you that question. What is a lure? And why do you need one? I mean, after all, you know, there, that's, that's a decent question. Why would you need a lure? Well, as far as I know, last couple times I've gone fishing and I've been in the boat, no fish swam up to the side of the boat and said, can I go home with you? <laughs> right? Why? Because to fish, I represent something not good. Right? I represent a big, bad future. Right? And if I don't practice catch and release, right, it could be their last day on earth. Right? So in order to catch fish, now please get this if you don't get anything else from this entire talk. In order to catch fish, I have to use a small, attractive temptation that is connected to a big, unattractive future. So that's what Satan does with us. He knows, Satan knows that if he were to just come marching up into your life and say, here I am, and I'm here to wreck your marriage, here I am, I'm here to wreck your job, here I am, I'm here to wreck your ministry, he knows we wouldn't go along with that. None of us, are, none of us would do that. 
Because, you know, and I was thinking about this, even fish, even fish aren't going to go along cooperatively with their own destruction. You've got to find a way to catch them. And I think Satan knows that. None of us are volunteering in line saying, okay, Satan, come ruin my life. But Satan does know what will get us. And just as the person who engineered this rather inexpensive lure, Satan will custom fit it for you. He knows what will twinkle for you. He knows what will shine for you. He knows what will get your attention. He knows what will catch your eye. What did Samson say? It caught my eye. It caught my eye. James 1.14. By the way, this is if, if any verse went along with this concept, James 1.14 says this temptation comes from our own desires. Which Now, this word entice here, which entice us, that word entice means to lure. So first there is the luring and drag us away, and then there is the dragging, and then these de desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. I mean, after all, Satan's smart. He knew he could get, Satan's, he, he could get Samson's attention with this gal. I mean, you know how guys are, right? The, and I'm not being facetious here. Guys are primarily driven in romantic relationships. There, there's, a, there's a great visual drive there. And so Samson had a, had a, or Satan had a really good idea here. Because you should know, and I, I don't want to be less than genteel. Be careful how I say this. Israelite women, when uh, their garb in public was, they would take their hair, they would put it up, they would put it in a, in a covering, right? Uh, it was prescribed that they do that. And then they, their outer garment was kind of like a robe that your arms go through, right? Covered everything up. It was very modest. Um, and so the gals that Samson was around that were from his people and the ones that his mom and dad wanted him to be involved with, right? These gals walked around looking like that, very modest um, and, and really following God's procedures for how they should dress, right? Now, the Philistine women, right, had an Egyptian influence in terms of what their clothing was like, right? And so it was not at all like what the Israelite clothing customs were, right? I mean, the most genteel way I know how to say this is that most of what the Israelite clothing covered up, the Philistine clothing did not, right? Because it was not, that was not a highly valued thing in their culture, right? Actually, what was, a, what was valued in their culture was attractiveness, and so we know from what we've been able to tell archaeologically that it was all about, in public, it was all about the looks. They would wear these headdresses with feathers or plumes or something really fancy to draw attention to the hair that the Israelite women were covering up. Okay? They would wear garments that were, very, that were accentuated to show off the beauty of their body when the Israelite women were keeping that under wraps. So I am not in the least bit surprised that this gal caught his eye and that he said, she looks good to me. I want that, right? Satan knew it was shiny. It's what'll get him, right? First there's the luring, then there's the dragging. And here's what I want to tell you, because I was, I was, I was, I was talking to the, the guy at the place where I bought this today. And I said, can you help me understand something? I said, I'm not enough of a fisherman to know. What is there in the water that looks like this? And he said, nothing. He said, well, there's some things that vaguely resembles. He said, but this is way better looking than anything that's in the water. And I said, well, why is that? He said, look, you can make it look as good as you want when it's fake. How's that for you? 
I mean, Satan can make it look just as good as he wants to make it look, because it's not a real opportunity, it's just a fake. So I want to give you this principle. I'm giving you a little bit of principles in this series, things to just keep in mind for life, and that is this, that anything more attractive than God's best is bait. I mean, I want my kids to learn this. I want the people that I'm close to to learn this. I want them to know that if it's not right, right, which is where God's best is, that's what the genuine article looks like, that's what the real deal is. Anything more attractive than that is bait. And it's fake. So the story kind of goes like this. And I've got to cover it quickly. That's what got me in trouble last hour. I went way over time trying to tell the story. I'm going to do this as quickly as I possibly can. The Bible says that Samson... You know, there was this wedding between Samson and this gal, and, and, and in the process of this, he decides to play a little game with the, uh, some of the Philistine guys that were part of the wedding party. Now, this was kind of not unusual, and uh, it was, you know, there was, no, uh, there was no television or any other kind of entertainment, so they, you know, this was kind of something that was done. Well, I'm going to come up with a riddle, and if you can answer it, then you get this, and if I can answer it, then... So basically, he said, here's a, here's a riddle. If you can answer my riddle properly, I'll give you this many changes of clothes. And back then, clothing was very uh, important and almost as good as money. It was something that, you know, was very valuable. Uh, and then he said, you know, but if you can't answer it, then I get something from you. So what happened was these guys really tried to figure out his riddle for days. Finally, the deadline was coming up and they go to his new wife and they say, did you invite us to this wedding, right, to make us poor? Because your new husband has totally hosed us, and we need to get the answer to this riddle, right? And so she goes to Samson, and she says, you don't love me. You hate me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. And he said, I haven't even given the answer to my father and mother. Why should I tell you? So she cried whenever she was with him. Okay, now how's this for a honeymoon, right? She cried whenever he was with him and kept it up for the rest of the celebration. And at last on the seventh day, he told her the answer because she was tormenting him with her nagging. And then she explained the riddle to the young men, right? Okay, so I got to give you this story super, super, super quick, all right? So, so he gives the information to her. She gives the information to the guys, right? The guys show up, and they answer his riddle beautifully. They have the perfect answer, right? And so he knows this, this wasn't kosher, right? And so he gets really upset. He says one of the funniest lines in all of Scripture, which I'll leave for another day. But the line was, Samson replied, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't have solved my riddle. But we will <laughs> leave that for another day, okay? All right. So anyhow, here's what happens, right? Samson is not about to give them clothing from his own collection. So he goes and kills uh, Philistine men, right? who earn at the wedding, takes their clothes and brings them to the guys to pay off his, his debt, right? And then he leaves town. He's mad. He's going to go home to mommy and daddy, right? So he goes home. He leaves his, he leaves his new wife there. Uh, and, and in the meantime, her dad, the bride's dad, lets her marry the best man from the wedding, right? So Samson finally cools off, right? And he decides, I'm going to go get back together with my wife. And so he takes a young goat. I guess that's the equivalent of going to Jared's when you're in that culture, right? So he brings her a goat. <laughs> And uh, so he shows up there and finds out she's already married to another guy. Actually, she's married to his best man, right? He doesn't like that very much, right? So what he does, he takes 300 foxes, he ties their tails together, and he puts torches uh, inside their tails and sends them off running through the, the agricultural fields that the Philistines had, burned all their crops, right? Boy, that started a whole deal because now, you know, the Philistines are really upset. Their crops got burned out. They find out this gal's dad let her marry somebody else, and they're really upset. Samson wouldn't have done that to us if he, if he hadn't done that. So now, right, they kill his wife and her dad, right? 
So now Samson's really mad, right? Well, I killed the only woman I ever loved, right? So now he goes back to the Philistines and he kills a ton of them, right? Big, long-term vendetta between Samson and the Philistines. I don't know how much of it was God's doing, but things are kind of coming together now, right? Because Samson's purpose was to do what? To stand against the Philistines, and now, because everything's happened the way it has, for sure, Samson is at least standing against the Philistines. But you know there's something about it. When a fisherman finds out that a certain kind of lure works, if you don't catch him that day, you'll come back again, and you'll use another lure that looks just like it. Check this out. Judges 16.1, one day Samson went to the Philistine town of Gaza and spent the night with a prostitute, another Philistine woman. Word soon spread that Samson was there, so the men of Gaza gathered together and waited all night at the town gates. They kept quiet during the night, saying to themselves, when the light of morning comes, we'll kill him. But Samson stayed in bed only till midnight. Then he got up, took hold of the doors of the town gate, including the two posts, and lifted them up, bar and all. He put them on his shoulders and carried them all the way to the top of the hill across from Hebron. Okay. Quickly, and I'm, I'm going to run out of time, I can tell in the service too, but here's what you should know. Okay, so he got out, barely escaped by the skin of his teeth from the situation with another Philistine woman. Before you know it, he's back in another situation. This time it's not even legit. This time he's just hanging out with a gal because he's paying her, right? And he decides to get up at midnight. He figures out all these guys are just waiting at the city gates to kill him. Now you have, you have to understand, we're not talking about a gate like the you know, the gate you have that goes to your backyard. We're talking about huge, monumental, you know, symbolic city gate. This is a big deal. I mean, it's kind of like where everybody gathers from the city. He takes the entire gate, grabs it, lifts it up, puts it on his shoulders, and walks a long distance off with the gates, right? Now, if you're one of those guys waiting to kill him, I think that would probably be enough to discourage you. After all, you don't want that gate on top of you, right? So you think about it. I want to be cautious about how I say this because... If you're in this position that I'm getting ready to talk about, I don't want to push you away. I don't want to discourage you, but I do want to, I want you to, I want to ask you to think. If you're in a position where Satan has almost got you once, and then he almost gets you another time, and you keep finding that every day when you wake up, it's the same lure in your life over and over again. Number one, that should tell you that Satan has figured out what your weakness is. Number two, it should tell you that this is your chance. This is your time to turn around. See, so often I have people come and they tell me, you know, Jonathan, all's quiet on the Western Front. I, you know, I know that I'm doing this and I know it's not right. I mean, I've had this conversation so many times. I know I'm doing it and I know it's not right, but God hasn't struck me dead yet. My family's all healthy. Everything seems to be going okay. I mean, my job couldn't be doing better. Everything right now seems to be going okay. Yes, let me tell you something. When you start biting on the hook, there is a season of quiet. But you should know, because it's important to interpret the season correctly. The season of quiet, it is a season of God's grace, and it is a season where Satan is waiting to set the hook. See, every fisherman knows if you're really landing that big fish, if you're that Superman person that's really successful and Satan really wants to mount you on his trophy wall, he knows that he can't set the hook too fast. There's got to be a little time where he's letting you have some slack and he's letting you run with it. And then when the time is right, then he sets the hook. But see, so often we interpret that season of quiet as, well, nothing's really wrong. After all, in the meantime, I'm, I'm not really in the right, right category. But then again, I'm not really in the wrong category. And then we see in Judges 16, the story that everybody knows about Samson. There's an infatuation between him and a woman named Delilah. We don't name people that we, um, that, or we don't use that nickname for people that we think are great. We say, well, that person was a Delilah, right? It's become a popular name now, so good. I'm glad it's being, I'm glad it's being vindicated and redeemed. But for a long time, there was a period where if you called somebody a Delilah, 
you were saying this is somebody who's going to betray you, right? Why? Because that's exactly what Delilah did with Samson. Again, any guess as to what kind of woman Delilah is? She's a Philistine woman, right? Because that's the, that's the lure that Satan has been getting him to bite with, right? So check this out. Judges 16. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah, right? They're not even married. They're just living together. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, Entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up. Then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver, right? Which was no small price, right, for each of them to give her 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, now think about how strange this conversation is. Delilah said to Samson, please tell me what makes you so strong and what it would take to tie you up securely. Are you kidding me? I mean, seriously, she comes up to him and says, I'm just wondering what the secret of your strength is. And then, by the way, what would it take to tie you up, right? So Samson, now, now keep in mind, I told you, eventually you're going to have a chance to turn around. If there ever was a chance to turn around, for the love of Pete, this was time. When somebody comes up to you and says, you know, how do I take you out? That would be a good time to bail, right? <laughs> but here's the thing. There comes a point in time where if you're a really strong person and you sense the risk, because I truly believe there is that moment where you begin to sense it. You begin to know, okay, this is risky. This is difficult. This could, this could take me out. But if you're really strong, if you've got that Superman complex going on, if you really can do a lot of amazing things, there is the temptation to go, I can handle this. I can handle this. And it is the temptation to mix up mentally the ideas of strength and control. Right? God will make you strong. There are certain areas of your life. I mean, all of us will have strengths. God builds us with strengths, and then some of us will have different strengths than the other. But you will have strengths, but you should know God has never given you control. There is self-control, but you're not going to get to control the world around you. Right? And so it's so easy, so easy for Samson. Okay, well, I know she's asking me how to tie me up, but I can handle this, right? And in doing so, I don't have to lose her. See, that's the thing. This is his chance to, to step into the right, right category. But if he were to go to what was really right, it would mean losing something that he really wants. It's very attractive to him. So instead, he's going to stay in the gray area, and he's going to play games. Check this out. He says, if I were tied up with seven new bowstrings that have not yet been dried, I'd become as weak as anybody else. So the Philistine rulers brought Delilah seven new bowstrings. She tied Samson up with him. She had hidden some men in the inner rooms of her house, and she cried, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. But Samson snapped the bowstrings as a piece of string snaps when it's burned by a fire. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. Afterward, Delilah said to him, you've been making fun of me and telling me lies. Now please tell me how you can be tied up securely. <laughs> okay, now this is time to run, okay? I mean, this is really time to get out of there. But he still thinks he can control it. If you know the story, you know he goes through a bunch of weird stuff. Okay, well, tie me up with new ropes. Okay, take my hair and put it in. A, by the way, notice that one of the last things that happens is he starts, starts. I mean, he's getting closer and closer. Well, if you were to take my hair and put it in a loom and, and tighten it all up, then I would be weak. Well, now he's talking about his hair. Isn't it interesting how we get closer and closer and closer to the edge? The temptation just gets a little. And you know why I think this happened? Can I tell you why I think, say, why I think Samson kept playing games like this? I think he was so used to being Superman that he was starting to think, you know, maybe, maybe this is something I can handle even if my hair was cut off. Maybe this is something I could handle even if I wasn't following all these rules. I mean, he's so used to being strong. And some of us, we can get to that point. We can think, well, I'm so used to being able to handle all these things that maybe I can just do my own thing. I think that's why all of a sudden he's talking about his hair. And then 
it snaps, right? Because after he's really fooled Delilah a few times, she starts pouting. How can you tell me I love you? Right? So now she's saying, well, you don't really love me. When you don't share your secrets with me. You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. And he, she tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. So finally, Samson shared a secret with her. So he says, you know, my hair has never been cut. I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. So if my head was shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as anybody else. And the Bible says, so that night, Delilah uh, lulled him to sleep on her lap and called for the barber. Right? This isn't going to be that hard. Right? And in one of the most sad things that you'll ever see in the Bible, when he woke up and she said, the Philistines have come to capture you, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. That's that Superman complex. I'll do it. I, I, I can just handle this. Okay, my hair's been shaved. Whatever. I can still do this, right? And I have seen this over and over again. I've been the one thing I have not loved about the pastorate is watching some really incredible men of God make huge mistakes and ended up losing their ministry. And do you know what's interesting about that? I think that Satan gets them with the hook. There's a period of time where they continue to have uh, this moment where, where Satan continues to dangle this and they keep making little mistakes. But eventually they really bite it hook, line, and sinker. And then they're able to get up and preach on the weekend and everything seems normal right they're able to get up and uh and sing on the weekend everything seems normal i i, I met uh, a, a professional uh, counselor the other day who'd had a major fall in his youth and, and he said i was i was so surprised i was able to counsel just like normal i was able to sit down and help people out just like normal why because there is that thought there's that season of grace and god has been given us time to turn around and then when we finally are hooked we wake up and we think well, I've preached before. I've sung before. I've counseled before. I've prayed before. I've been there for my kids before. All those things. And we think, well, I can do it again. But not if God has left the room. I mean, check it out. He said, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he did not realize that the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, which is a familiar place. That's where he was spending the night with that one woman where he was bound with bronze chains and to, forced to grind grain in the prison. And I really don't have time to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, if you've watched a movie with Samson in it, or you've read a book, and they've talked about Samson grinding grain, and you see this image of this huge stone in the middle of a room and a big you know, piece of wood that Samson's pushing around in a circle like a workhorse grinding grain, get rid of that image. That is not what that is about. Okay. Grinding grain in the prison was something that was a woman's job, right? Which, forgive me for saying that, at that time in the culture, it was a job that women did, okay? And it was generally a very small-ish kind of stone. It was a stone that some, a, a woman of average, you know, build could easily move around. And so it was, a, and it was, a, it was a small thing. You would sit at a stool and you would do this with the grain and, and grind it. So if you had a particularly strong man that you really wanted to embarrass, right? What you would do is you would tell the lady who was grinding grain she doesn't have to do that job anymore and sit this huge gargantuan guy down at this little tiny grain mill and he's going to spend his time grinding a handful of grain at a time. That's exactly what they did to Samson. And so here's the thing. I just want to take you for a moment to Samson's mind. Here he is. He's sitting there. He's grinding grain. He cannot see because the, the, the Philistines have taken out his eyes. And I think it is at this moment that he gets it. You know, I was trapped. This, you know, I was played. And that's why I want to talk to you right now about the fact that if you are very effective, if you are very strong, Satan is going to try to play you. He would really like your trophy on his shelf. So there's a couple things that I think we can take away from this, and, 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 and quickly we'll be done, okay? 
Genesis 4, 7, right? It's going to be a passage that we're going to use. Actually, I'll use it in just a second. But I want to tell you one of the coolest things I read as I was doing a little bit of research. I knew that researching lures would help me because this tie is so close to what we experience in real life with what Satan wants to do to tempt us. This is what one guy said. He said, no matter how great we make lures to be, he said, no matter how, he said, eventually you can't get around the fact that if you have to put a hook in it, it will never look exactly like the real thing. And I thought, what a powerful thought. What does God tell us? God says, just do the right, right thing. Because if Satan is trying to hook you, the one thing you can be sure of is that he still won't be able to make it look like the right, right thing. If he has to put a hook in it so he can dry it, drag you away, it will never look like the right, right thing. Check this out. Genesis 4-7. Now, this is from uh, Cain and Abel, right? Now, if you know Cain, you probably know, the reason that you probably know him is because he killed his brother Abel. He's the first human murderer on the planet, right? But this is before he's killed Abel. Now, Cain has brought a sacrifice to God, but it was not what God asked for. And God, was, God did not accept his sacrifice. Now Cain is mad. And God comes to him and says, uh, Cain, you will be accepted if you do what is right. Or also that means you will be lifted up if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, so if you choose not to do the right, right thing, if, you, if you've made up your mind, I'm going to live in the middle, if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Watch out then, because sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. So what, what God is saying is, if you want to live in the gray area, just beware. When you live in the gray area, that is when sin is going to have an opportunity to control you. You're going to be wrestling for your life. You're going to be in this, this position where Satan's trying to bait you, and you're going to be trying to, to, to you're going to be running for your life the whole time. God's saying the way to insulate yourself from that, He says, you will be accepted if you do what is right. So the way not to end up in that fight for your life is to do the right, right thing. When I was at that conference a couple weeks ago, I was there with giants of Christian counseling, people who've written books that I've read and, and loved. And one of the guys was going to his room, you know, and I try not to bug people if I don't really know him. You know, I know, hey, it's so good to see you. I've read so many of your books. But I mean, you know, but it was interesting to see the guy. And I, walking down the hall, he's going into his room and the, the people, the hotel people are taking his television set out, right? And so I walked up to him. Now, this is, a, this is a person you would recognize. I mean, his immense body of, of work about Christian self-discipline and all these sorts of things. And I walked up to him and I said, is your TV not working? And he said, no, I never let them leave a TV in my hotel room. He said, why would I do that? He's like, I'm not here with my wife. He's like, that would be just leaving a huge space open for trouble. And I thought, well, you know what? For a split second, you know what I thought? I thought, well, he shouldn't have to worry about that. I mean, this guy's really smart. This guy's really, I mean, he understands what Christian self-control is about. He's written books about it. And that's where I would be wrong. This guy gets it. He knows Satan wants to put his head up on a trophy wall. And he's saying, I might as well just not leave that bait in my room. I thought that was pretty smart. So the first thing to do, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're struggling with the lure that Satan has put in your life, number one, don't get comfortable coexisting with the temptation. Don't put up with it. Don't leave it around, right? So the three things that Joseph taught us, I don't, I'm, I don't have time to go into this in this room, but it's the same things I want to teach my kids. It's what, it's what Joseph did in Genesis. The three things about temptation, say no, stay away, run if you have to. Real simple. Say no, stay away, run if you have to, okay? Listen to the people that follow God and love you. I mean, Samson's mom and dad weren't perfect, but they tried, to, they tried to help him understand it wasn't a smart idea. Listen to the people that love God and love you. And then finally, do the right, right thing. Because that's how you'll insulate yourself. But I, I, I want to quickly say this, and I'll be done. If you've been hooked, and all of us have at some point have been hooked, and, and to some extent, 
your life's not over, and God can do something with where you're at. I'm, the, one, of the, one of my favorite things in the whole story of Samson is it said that they gouged out his eyes and they put him to work grinding grain, and it says, but then his hair began to grow back. And that is the restorative nature of the God that we serve. He will get you back on track. God, Satan can drag you away, but eventually, if you want to walk back towards the light of God's purpose, he can do something with that. I'm going to take two minutes and tell you about this. I talked in these last few weeks about the conference I was at because those are good times for me. I get to hang out with people that I tremendously respect and talk to them. There's a couple that was there, and he is a world-renowned expert on uh, sexual addiction. And, um, but if you knew his story, and most, most of us know his story, you would know that he started his career as a counselor, a pastor counselor. He was a, a psychologist but a pastor at the same time. And he got involved with some of the ladies he was counseling. And there was that moment when it hit the fan. There was that moment where all of a sudden it was known. It was known to his wife. The story is just incredible. Every time I hear him tell the story, I I end up breaking down in tears because just the pain of what everybody had to be going through, what he was going through, what his wife was going through. And I'll, I'll never forget, every time he tells the story, He always stops, and he always cries. I mean, this guy has been through some genuine pain over his actions. And he always stops and he says, but you know what I learned? I learned that God can restore anybody at any time, no matter how far they go down the wrong road. This guy has been the foremost counselor over the past two decades in sexual addiction in the Christian world. We wouldn't have half of what we know about sexual addiction in the Christian world if it weren't for this guy. So I'm here to tell you, the two things I wanted to leave you with at the end of the series is, number one, don't bite. Run away from it. When Satan tempts you with something, run away. But if you have been hooked, then it's time to turn back to God. It's time to accept the grace he was giving you when there was a season of quiet. It's time to go back and say, God, it's time to, I, I want to be restored. You know, the end, of, the end of Samson's story doesn't end very well. I mean, the bottom line is that Samson was brought into this huge amphitheater with all these people, Philistines, to, to put on a show for them because of how strong he was. And, and Samson asked God to remember him one more time. And he leaned against the big posts that were holding up the roof of the amphitheater. And he asked God to allow him to avenge what had happened to him. And he pulled on those posts and brought the whole place down and killed everybody that was in the room, including himself. And the Bible, the, the, end, of, the end of Samson's story, how's this for a, for a bedtime story ending? The end of the story says that he, he killed more Philistines in his death than he did the whole time he was alive. It's interesting and kind of tough to decode, but... Here's where I'm going with this. You know what I think God wants us to know? I think God wants us to know that once we get back online with his purpose, no matter what Satan tries to take away from us, no matter what our actions have ended up robbing us of, I mean, Samson's actions robbed him of his wife, his freedom, his eyes. But at the end of the day, God can make us more effective if we will just give up the temptation and say, God, I'm back, I'm back with you. I'm yours. So we said, turn to God, say no to what Satan wants you to do, and let your purpose be restored. Let God use you. Be effective. But just know that temptation is going to be out there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. We pray that you'll help us to watch out for those temptations that are like kryptonite to us that so easily trip us up. Father, help us to be strong in in you and to return to you when we walk away. Thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for being here. Next week we start Build It.